every author obsesses over one single date, the day their book gets published, their pub date. All those rigorous edits and deadlines leading up to that one infamous day when the book and author has been living, breathing, and conceiving for years is launched into the world. This is a show about pub dates, a place where we delve into the story, behind the story of how a book comes to market. I'm your host, Allison Trowbridge. I'm an author myself and the founder CEO of Copper, a platform that connects authors and readers around books. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hudgens. So welcome to our pub date. Pull up a chair and grab yourself a libation. We may not be in a pub, but we'll definitely be raising a glass in celebration. Jed, thank you for joining the podcast today. I think I can say definitively that this is already one of my favorite interviews I have ever done. And we haven't even started yet. (laughs) (laughs) What an honor. Wow, 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 wow. Well, I'll try to live up to the impossibility of that. So for the handful of people who have not had the pleasure of reading Judd's books yet, Judd is the New York Times bestselling author of Like Streams to the Desert and To Shake the Sleeping Self. He is also probably the best follow on Instagram. Highly recommend. (laughs) And just one of my favorite people on the planet. I feel like every time I talk to you, we like dive down some wormhole into the nature of the universe. And it's such a delight. So thank you for being with us. Oh my God. Well, it is my true pleasure. I do have to tell you, it's the book is called Like Streams to the Ocean. It would be oh, much did I say more. Like streams to the... Oh man, I already messed it up. Like Streams Which to the sense. Ocean. <laughs> I mean, listen, the desert needs it more. But it does. <laughs> I think Streams in the Desert is a famous book. That's probably why it, I didn't it call is. it that. I, Isn't I it? think that it is. Yes. But I literally have your book sitting on my nightstand. So I really do love it. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I'm working on book number three. I'm like deep in the edits. Which I cannot wait to talk about. How are you feeling today as an author? I feel cautiously optimistic because I'm in that, I don't know if you feel this way, but a book takes so long to get done that I completely forget what each process, what, what each season of, the creation is like. Yeah. And then, well, you know, with nostalgia, I'm like, oh, it's not that bad. But (laughs) the editing process, so you get your, you know, shitty first draft, you turn it in, then your editor sends back, you know, all the marked up, whatever. And even if he says, or she says, I'm obsessed, it doesn't matter. There's still going to be a zillion notes of, can you clarify this? Or what did you mean here? Or where, where are we exactly? Can whatever. And, so just going through, sometimes it's a, such an easy fix. Like, like what state are you in here? What, what, describe the room. Other times it's like, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand the motivation of so-and-so or I need you to explain. And then I, it is like, it's like walking into a room and then the feng shui is off and the furniture is wrong and you don't know what to do. You're like, yeah. I can't start over. Maybe I can, but there's all this, this room is full of stuff. And so I'm in that phase where I'm going through and basically I'm just implementing all his notes. And then once it's clean like that, then I'm going to zoom out. Then I put it on an iPad with no notes 
And then I just read it mm. and then make changes of flow and, sp- and spice and like language and make sure that, because it's just so hard to hold a whole book in your head of like, did I already talk about this? Did I mention <laughs> this person's name already? Especially when it's memoir, because it's, you know, the truth of your life is so many factors happening at once and overlapping stories and overlapping characters. So anyway, how am I feeling? I feel like this book could be good, but I'm so deep in the mess that I hope it's good. (laughs) I think one of the most encouraging things that you just said, because we have a lot of authors and aspiring authors who listen to this, is that you are deep in the mess because I think it's the curse of every creative person to feel like you're the only one who swims in it and everyone else, it just pours out of them while they're sitting in a little patch of sunlight by the window. I learned so much about writing from making documentaries at Invisible Children with Jason Russell and that team because you would have thousands of hours of raw footage and you would have to craft it into 30 minutes or 20 minutes of a story. And what the, the key takeaway from making a, a doc- documentaries was that it can be bad up until the very last day. Like when you, it's like a quilt that's a bunch of different gorgeous pieces. Like when you sew it together, like it's not a quilt until the final thread is sewn and it's a solid thing. And all of a sudden you flap it out and it's gorgeous. It's like when you go through and fine tune each, you know, thought connection from this page to that page, from this metaphor to that metaphor, from this conversation to that resolution, it will feel like chaos and bad until you sew that you just make the tiniest little tweaks or, you know, I mean, how many analogies can I make up? It's like Ikea furniture. It's like, it's gonna, if you don't, if you don't get every screw just right, it's trash until it's not. And then all of a sudden you get all the joints just perfectly aligned and boom, it's symmetrical and gorgeous. And it doesn't come until the very last second, you know, and then there's the quote of like, no one's ever really finished writing. They only finally turn away in disgust. And it's like, I really feel that as well. But I just know that it's that those last passes where you just go through and make sure the flow works. And like with documentaries, one of the rules we had was like every 30 seconds we would pause it and say, are you still watching? Do you still care? Wow. And so like, because if you don't care, why would you expect someone else to care? And so like, would you turn the page? And it doesn't have to be Hunger Games level excitement, but it's just like, have you like given some delicious language? Have you, you know, given a reflection or a perspective that's surprising have you described something human and beautiful mm-hmm. have you described something shocking and like gonna intrigue their like voyeuristic tendencies whatever it is like you got to f- keep feeding them as they're going or they're gonna close the book so anyway those are the things I look for one well, one of the things I think is so impressive about your career there's kind of this old adage in publishing right now where they they say memoirs don't sell and you write memoirs and your memoirs sell how do you take kind of the day-to-day life and the mundane and your ability to kind of extract so much meaning and 
Um, and it's almost like you go in with this like surgeon's scalpel and like pull apart something that everyone else just would look at and like nod their head at. And you, you actually ask all the questions of why. What What is that process like for you? How do you make just normal life and your life so fascinating and compelling to make it page turning? I think, I think it has a lot to do with like a personal immune system of like, when I was in middle school and realized I was gay and in a Christian private school and it was very scary. And I realized what that, I realized what I was before that, but I didn't know what it was Mm -hmm. called. I didn't know it was a thing. I thought it was Mm -hmm. like a private ailment. And, and my coping mechanism for feeling like I was in trouble and I didn't understand it. And I woke up into this trouble was I need to understand how everything works because understanding Mm -hmm helps me cope with how scary the world is. If I can at least understand the component parts, at least I can predict what's going to happen next. And so I just, my like eighth grade brain became very spongy to see like, Mm. what are the motivations behind this? Why do people say that? What are they really getting at? And then that really turned my brain into the brain of a watcher and an analyzer and a systems thinker. Like, it's not just what are people doing, but why and who told them, you know, mm. what or and, you know, I knew people were saying things that I loved that hurt me privately, like, because maybe they didn't know I was gay or, or whatever it is. And they would say something that made me scared, but I knew them very well. And I knew they were a good person. And mm. I wondered if they knew this about me, would they say that? Probably not. So what makes people say anything? And what are they really saying? It just caused me, it turned me into this like analyzer, which was really for safety to try to figure out how to make it in this life. And then I, I started writing it down in my twenties, like in my journals and then on a blog. And then people said, Oh, I like this. And people said, Oh my gosh, thank you for saying that. That's exactly how I feel. And I was like, Oh, maybe, maybe it'd be cool to say this in public a little bit out loud we live in an age where you can just put something online, which is dangerous and also wonderful. And people, it, it, it just made me realize, wow, when I go through something, I'm not just going through it for me. Mm. Like it's, I am going through it for me. I can't, I can't live anyone else's life, but the amount of times I've heard someone tell their perspective and it's helped me, I might as well just say it and see if it helps anybody. And <clears throat> I don't know. So that's that's what I did and that's what I love doing and what I have made a career out of, which is so it still feels fresh because I quit yeah. my job, you know, at 30 to do this. So yeah. and I'm 39, so I'm coming up on a deck. I turned my first book in at 33, which incidentally, I'm not even a woo-woo person. Like I don't <laughs> even know about astrology, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but it was my Jesus year. And then yeah. I did this, my friend who's into all that. She was like, oh, I have these two Polish witches who do numerology. And I was like, that sentence is really exhausting, <laughs> but what, what are you talking about? And she was like, just tell me, you know, your birthday, whatever, whatever, and we're just going to send it to him. I'm going to gift you this reading, whatever. And, you know, numerology, they give you back a number of your life, whatever. And my friend's a number one, and someone else is a number seven, and I was a number 33, which I was like, 
Wow. Anyway, there was actually a lot of weird stuff in this witchy reading, which we can go into, but I'm I'm not promoting it. I was just, it was just fun to read. I was like, hmm. But uh, <laughs> I really feel like, yeah, I'm six years in to really, the, I mean, I turned the book in at 33 and then I just turned my third book in at 39. So that does feel nice. The nine and the threes and the third book and you're on the right path. You're on the right path. I hope. Jed, tell me about, so one of the most fascinating statistics to me is that 81% of Americans want to write or aspire to write a book someday. There are so many people who have these stories inside them or have something they want to say. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about you taking that leap to go from a job that you had where you were quite successful in the human rights activism arena. And then, I mean, I remember, so I worked in anti-trafficking. I don't think we knew each other, but I certainly knew of you and knew, knew of you as a voice in this movement. And then through mutual friends hearing that you had quit your job to go ride your bike up through the, you know, entire Western hemisphere, basically, and write a book on it. It seems like such a courageous act. Tell me about that decision to leave everything behind and start this journey. Well, I mean, I think that statistic, 81% of people want to write a book to me is, I mean, it really reflects the reality that I feel, which is the vast majority of people want to say something. And they want to, what's so great about a book is it's something that you said that you can hold in your hands. Yeah. And, you know, there's that Oprah quote where she says after doing 25,000 episodes or whatever it was, 25,000 hours of interviewing, she said, every single person I've ever interviewed is asking the same question is, do you hear me? And does what I say mean anything to you? Every, yeah. if, from Obama to the rape survivor to whoever it is, is do you hear me and does what I say mean anything to you? And yeah. that to me is what everyone's asking. And what and writing a book is this like tangible way. Even if it's a novel, it's still like you've made something with your mind and your effort and it now exists. And that just is so cool. I... Yeah decided that I was going to quit my job and and become a writer or try really. I mean, it was a sequence of events of like reading Malcolm Gladwell's book outliers and the whole like concept of 10,000 hours, whether or not that's scientifically real, it doesn't matter. I I got, it actually is. It is. Yeah. Okay. So it got me thinking about what would I even spend 10,000 hours doing? Like Mm. what? Cause I think there's a lot of people who are, a jack of all trades and a master of none. They're like, I'm okay at a lot of things, but I don't even know what I would do to be like excellent at something. Like, I don't know. And I remember reading, I don't even, it's so funny. I never know where I read things, but they get in my head. And it was this, this correction that said, we all thought Benjamin Franklin said, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. But he actually said, I'm a jack of all trades, master of one. And I thought that was, that this was all like contemporaneous. And I was like, I was like, oh, that actually completely changes the meaning of that phrase, which is you should kind of know how to do a lot of things, but you should master one thing. And it pays dividends in just like 
you know, our society is built on expertise. Like whether you're an expert in plumbing or you're an expert in microchips or you're an expert in PR, crisis negotiate, whatever it is, it's all about specialization and expertise. And so what are you going to specialize in? And it really got me thinking about that in my 20, you know, mid to late 20s. And I realized my favorite thing in the world is reading books. And really my favorite thing in the world if I go beyond reading books, it's when I read something in a book that I underline because I'm like, mm. oh my God. Like, I didn't know that that's exactly what I thought until I read that. And so somehow that thought was already in my head, wow. but I didn't know how to say that. And now yeah. I've read it and I immediately recognized it and I'm underlining it. And so I said, I would spend 10,000 hours delivering that feeling to other people if I could. That would be my wow. dream. And so- that's what I, I, I did. I was like, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to try to write. And, you know, I feel too young to write memoirs because I'm only in my late twenties or when I quit, I'll be 30 that, you know? And so I was like, I'll do some big grand adventure. And then at least if I'm a mediocre writer, the adventure will be interesting. (laughs) And so that's, that was basically, it was basically this big attempt of, I just don't want to be, I don't want to have regret when I'm older that I didn't try something. Like I'm still young enough to fail and get back up. You know, Mm -hmm. I guess everyone still can fail and get back up at whatever age you're at, but I didn't have a mortgage or kids or a husband or anything like that. I could just do something Yeah. and I could screw around for two years, try something. And if I'm bad at it, go back and do what I was doing before. (laughs) And so I did. And then it worked. So how great is that? It's so great. And I think, no, but I, I think so much of our kind of the most fulfilling things in our lives are on the other side of some sort of courageous leap. Mm-hmm. Like there's some amount of risk. I, I recently heard an incredible speaker, Andy Crouch, talk about how the highest human flir- flourishing is at the points where we have highest authority and highest vulnerability. And I mm. think the idea of writing a book is, I mean, it's highest vulnerability in every respect. You're literally pouring your heart out and it's highest authority because you are literally crafting something that someone else will hold in their hands. And I think there's something kind of mystical at the other side of that. And, Mm. And I'm so curious how it's been for you to see just the impact of your words and your books on people's lives. Talk to me a bit about your readers and, and how you, yeah, how you see your books resonate with them and how that feels as an author to see that impact. It is extraordinarily cool because growing up in the Christian South, scared and gay and laboring in my twenties to figure out what that means. And if I'm going to be celibate, if I'm going to lose my faith, if I'm going to do all these, like just the, the anguish and the writhing and feeling so alone. And Mm -hmm. so when, when a reader finds me, writes me an email, sends me a DM or sees me at, at a restaurant or at a coffee shop. And they're like, your words really touched me and helped me. And and it's not just gay boys from the South. It's like everybody, women, people from fundamentalist backgrounds of other types or whatever, you know. And that has just been such an extraordinary 
gift of knowing that I'm not alone and that people can even build a community around a piece of my life that I put out in the world that they can find each other even. Mm. And I don't know, it's exactly what I hoped would happen. Truly, truly, truly is that a 22 year old gay boy in rural America would write me an email and say, I thought I was alone or I was scared to even read anything about this and your book surprised me and now I feel like I can be okay. I mean, that's exactly who I wrote that book to. Mm. And those are the emails that I've gotten many times. So it's Mm. very, 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 very special. Our first engineer at Copper, Natalia, she's Colombian. Her favorite book is To Shake the Sleeping Self. Wow. Isn't that neat? Oh my God. Wow. (laughs) I was like, oh, I know him. (laughs) That's so hard to believe. Wow. Jed, tell, tell us a little bit about the journey of imposter syndrome for an author, because something I'm constantly struck by is, and you made a reference to it when we first started chatting. I, I've talked to authors who've literally had their book chosen as one of Oprah's book picks and sold millions of copies, and they still wrestle with saying, I'm an author and feeling this imposter syndrome. I'm curious what that experiences felt like for you and also where you think that imposter syndrome comes from specifically for creatives? Well, it's one layer of it is that it's easy to idolize your favorite writers, especially if you're, I mean, if you're a writer, you're probably a reader. And if you're a reader, many times the people you're reading are dead (laughs) and iconic, Mm. you know? And so there's this like image of John Steinbeck and Toni Morrison and Joan Didion, whoever it is. And you're just like untouchable Queens, you know, what are we going to do here? And so it feels almost embarrassing to even like have the same occupation as that. And I also think that (laughs) being a successful writer is very much dancing with the muse and the zeitgeist of the moment because it is very, I mean, you talk to any publisher and they have no idea what makes a bestseller. No that's idea. why, no idea. That's why they saw off the shotgun and shoot into the sky. <laughs> They're just like, maybe we'll get a bird and they have no idea. And neither does the author. Yeah. And so you definitely feel out of control of it all. And I remember when my first book was coming out and they were like, do you want us to keep you updated on sales numbers if we're maybe going to hit the New York Times? And I was like, are are you people insane? The New York Times? No. No, no, no. Don't even tell me. I I don't care and I don't want to know. And because that is something that, because I have no idea even how that is calculated, much less who's calculating it. And I have no idea how to manipulate that. other than write the best book I can, but there's some of my favorite books of all time sold 6,000 copies or less. And so it's like, well, don't even tell me, you know? And so it it definitely feels like this magical mystery of what's going to strike, you know, like the body keeps the score was written in 2011. Yeah. Yeah. Great example. And then, you know, that sweet, researcher guy in San Diego (laughs) or wherever he is, is just sitting there, the pandemic hits. And he's like, 
well, I guess I'm been going to be inside. <laughs> and then his book is number one bestseller for three years, you know, whatever it is. Wow. And it's like, yeah, th- you, you don't even know what the world is up to. And so, and neither do publishers. And so I think when you do get chosen by a publisher and you do get chosen by that system. And then maybe you tickle the zeitgeist a little bit. It's like, it feels very out of your control. Mm. And so it it doesn't, it's not like being a savvy wall street investor and you know Mm. what to do. It's not like most jobs, like, you know how to make money. You do this and money comes and this job, like with much of art is like, you can still be doing the exact same thing and the money can leave you. And the, book deals can leave you and the audience, Mm. who knows? And so all that to say, it's this very precarious position to be in as an artist. And it just doesn't feel, it's very hard to grasp. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are actors and musicians and like singers, songwriters, they're just like, they have a big song and then they keep writing great songs and mm, no one cares or (laughs) Or, and then, and then they're just like in the shadows and then all of a sudden, wh- who knows, you know, Billie Eilish co-writes with them and then it's like the biggest song in the country and they're like, I was about to quit. So yeah. it's just this weird, unstable existence. <laughs> and so when you actually do get to do it and it does pay your rent, <clears throat> it is a strange feeling. That is and I don't know. so well put, Yeah. <laughs> And I don't know that that goes away. And I kind of like, I'm a big Cormac McCarthy fan. Mm. And I've been like obsessing over the few interviews he's given, like one in 92, one in 2002. And I mean, basically there's just a few. And Supposedly the, the Cormac he, McCarthy on Twitter isn't actually even him. The very It's not, one. it's not. <laughs> yeah. And- so, and the way he just like is so poor, his book, he was getting, he got the MacArthur Genius Grant. He was getting all these awards and he never had a book before All the Pretty Horses. I don't think he had a single book that sold more than like 3,000 copies. Wow. It was just the intelligentsia of the literati reading his books and loving it and no one else cared. And he just lived in a, like a lean to shack behind a gas station with his poor wife like eating hard boiled eggs and writing all day. Like, and he didn't care. And I was just, and he wouldn't, he still then wouldn't do interviews. People wanted him to come teach. They were offering him money to speak. And he's like, no, I'm not doing that. And I'm not saying that, I mean, I love speaking. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, but it's very clear. He did what he wanted to do. And what that is, is Mm. to tell stories and write. And so I just hope, like my favorite thing is to like, have my occupation be to hang out, to live, and to think about it and to figure Oof. out what the hell does this mean? Oh, and so good. And so, if I get to keep doing that with my, I've been doing it now for a decade, that's pretty cool. And if I keep, if I get to keep doing it, what a privilege. Tell us a little bit about your creative process. I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Actually, my my mom sent me an incredible article yesterday about that reference Ed Sheeran talking about how the creative 
process for him is like turning on a tap where the first water that comes out is just like the rust water and it's disgusting. And you have Mm. to like let it run for a while before the clear water starts to flow. And I love that analogy so much because going back to what we were saying earlier, I think the assumption is for most creatives is that everybody else just gets kind of the the brilliant end product on the page when they're starting out rather than realizing it's kind of entering into the, as Anne Lamott calls it, the the shitty first drafts and like the the mess of the creative to tap into the the genius on the other side. What is what does that creative process look like for you when you sit down to write? I really try to obey the African proverb, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And it's like, I try to break up a big idea into little bite-sized scenes and pieces. And then just, I'm like, today I'm going to write the scene where my mom and I get into a big argument. And that's what I'm doing today. And I'm going to make that a whole thing. I'm, so I can have all these Lego pieces that then I build something with. But I got to build the Legos first. And so, mm-hmm. and I generally like outline, I hand in my journal, I outline, what does it need? And then throughout the day, because my mind is tuned to I'm writing a book, a scene will pop in my head or what it should feel like or what it should mean, like a vibe. Uh, you know, there was, I remember Diane Sawyer or somebody was doing a piece on Coldplay while they were at a writer's camp, like making Viva La Vida or something. And they had written on the wall their like rules of songwriting. And it was like, can people sing along? Do we surprise them? keep a little mystery. And it was like these like interesting, I just remember keep a little mystery because it was like, it shouldn't make perfect sense. Like let there be some like mystery zhuzh in there that gives the imagination a little something. And I, I think about that a lot of just like it make things a little weird because that just like, it just like gives it a flavor. And totally. And so I'll just think like when I'm working on something, of I'll see a movie and the way I felt two thirds of the way in, I'll like make a note of that or a sentence that someone says or whatever, I'll write it down. You know, David Sedaris famously has little notebooks in his pocket and all day, if you ever hang out with them, this has been relayed to me all day, all day. He's he'll be like up oh, and he'll write down like something you said or some moment. And you don't, you know, don't know what he's writing, but he's just documenting all day little moments because his brain is so attuned to capturing the weirdness of humans that it's happening all the time. And I was inspired by that. So I do that quite a bit, not as much as him, I'm sure, but just little, like the moment something is interesting, I write it down and then who knows if Mm -hmm. I'll use it, but I just want to get it down. So I have like a collection of things. I love that you say that because the attunement is like, I almost feel like it's like tuning a little radio frequency dial and then it's it's training yourself to pay attention because there's constantly things flying past you that are interesting or compelling or you have a thought of, gosh, this is, you know, the way this aspect of the world works. And like when I'm in writing mode, I'm most of it is just taking notes in Evernote all day. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah, you just kind of like train the muscle of observation and yeah. And then you like I like to set up little just reminders of like 
You know, this, this book I'm working on right now is all about my relationship with my mother, and we're very diametrically opposed politically and spiritually, but then we're best friends. And, like, it's analyzing how do we have a relationship at all with it is so rich with love but also hurt. And yeah. I have just, like, a little note next to my computer that says, you love her and people love her. And it's, so it's just a reminder that, like, the the arguments we get into and the challenges that we face will mean so much more if the reader dies for her because they already die for me because I'm the narrator. Yeah. So they, yeah. I need to make, I need to make sure that it is so clear that she is perfect in her way and gorge and funny and likable and everyone wants to be around her. And that maybe you disagree with some things, but everybody disagrees with certain things. And, some of hers may be real trigger points for you as they are for me. Yeah. But that doesn't negate her beauty and her humanity, which I think culture, which is us to wholesale reject someone if they do not fall in line to certain beliefs. And I just think that's a losing game. And so that's what this book is about. So I'm just always reminding myself of things like be funny, whatever it is, so that it keeps the flow. Yeah. I I love that you talked about that because I, that's why I'm so excited about this next book that you're working on, because I think we do live in a world that is very black and white and wants to polarize and wants to be in the mindset of you're for us or you're against us. And to have the focus on someone who is completely beloved by you and you don't need to agree with her mm. in order to love her well and be in beautiful relationship with her, I think is absolutely profound and incredibly countercultural. And I'm so curious to hear a bit more around how you navigate, especially as someone who writes nonfiction and memoir, how do you navigate writing about the people in your life and doing it in a way that's honoring, but also being truthful and is that ever a tension that you have to navigate or, or live It with? is horrible, horrible, horrible because <laughs> like I just don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And, and there is no way that you can portray someone fairly unless it is pure propaganda. And then you're actually doing it unfairly mm-hmm. because you're just buttering them up in a way that is unrealistic. So there is no way totally. to do a re- realistic portrayal of anybody. And, and there's no way to write a good story mm-hmm. without conflict. And so true. So it yeah. is very difficult. And I have a couple goals in it. I mean, I'll use my writing about my mom as an example, cause she's, she is the person that is my muse, especially in this book. It's one, I believe she's a worthy opponent. I'm not punching down. I'm punching up. Okay. And two, my hope would be that if her Bible study ladies or a member of her church reads this book, she is the clear hero to them. And, and the, the narrator is unreliable. That would be, I would want someone to read that. And and like, I've portrayed her well enough to where if someone agrees with her, they're like, she is so strong in light of this relativistic little shit, you know? And three, I really do my best <laughs> to write from my scars and not my wounds. 
So it's, you know, I, I remember hearing Glennon Doyle say that, and it was, it was so impactful to me because it's like, if you write from your open wounds, which some people do on their Facebook status, on their Instagram, on Twitter, it's not good. And it is messy. It's not good. There's blood everywhere. And yes, and it is. It's just, and and if you if you write from your scars, then you're actually talking about something that is healed to a point of you're being able to survive and be okay. And you are basically telling people what happened. And you, but you're on the other mm-hmm. side of it in a major way. It's not, it doesn't mean it's gone. Yeah. doesn't mean it, the scar is not yeah. visible, but it does mean that you're healthy enough to talk about it. I also was very impacted by this statement that it was a, it was a professor writing about Jack Kerouac and his oeuvre. And they were saying that he never had a mean thing to say about anybody. And he would write about really, mm-hmm. really intense, wild people. But he, it was, mm. it was never mean, and mm. I, th- I thought a lot about that because I don't have a mean thing to say about anybody, and I think when you write something mean, you are not writing to your reader, you are writing to mm. the person to which you're being mean, and you're looking mm. for attention, and you're looking to get the power back, whereas you can write about someone being hurtful. Or you can whatever, but it, that is a different conversation because if you're writing with the intention to help yourself understand and in turn help the reader understand the reality of life, that is very different than mean writing. And so I try to balance all of those things, but then also know that this is my life and I have every right to tell it. And Mm. And knowing that I'm not being mean, knowing that I check myself, knowing that I'm telling the truth, knowing that I love the people that I write about with my whole heart, mm. and knowing that avoiding conflict is often not helpful and actually just yeah. lets it fester and grow into real wounds and trauma. And so it is not an easy process. There, there will come a time – I mean – there's a reason a lot of people write memoirs about their parents after their parents have passed away. It's a different experience, but I like want to process my relationship with my parents now, you know, and do it live. (laughs) Yeah. So, which I'll say the favorite, my favorite content that you put on Instagram is anytime you do any stories about your mom and your adventures with her, (laughs) it is, she, I mean, she, she will be the hero of your story. She is Mm -hmm. incredible and a character in and of herself. How have you talked to her about this and, and how does she, is she excited about the book? Is she nervous? How is she feeling? How do you guys? I think it's both. Cause I've really buttered her up in the sense of like, mom, you are, you are my muse. You are the star of this book, but it is a very difficult book. I include our worst blowouts. And so know that that's in there. And she's like, all right. I think I'm hoping because she hasn't read it yet. I need to get it into a place where it's a, I'm proud of it before she reads it. But she, I'm optimistic that she will understand it and appreciate it. I'm also scared. She may really hate it. I don't think she will. I I don't think she will. I don't think she will. But, you know, there's, there comes a point, you know, she's 75 and she might be like, I don't want my business out there, but she's Mm. just, she likes her business out there. She wants people to talk about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> she does. <laughs> well, they will. And she just like solidified a book deal of herself to get her memoir done. What? I mean, she's written it mostly and then she sold it. Wow. And so it might come out pretty similar to mine. So I think there's also the added experience of she isn't just someone that's being talked about. The power dynamic yeah. isn't shit. It's like she's also talking. Now it's about her yeah. childhood, but she has some hard things to say about her mother and her book. Mm. So there's mm. some camaraderie there and some understanding, which is helpful. I'm seeing like a, a two book like holiday package deal. I want to buy both of them together and read yes. multiple, multiple vantage points. When you think about your upcoming book launch, Jed, how does it make you feel? Because so many authors I talk to love the process of the writing, love having created something, love seeing it in the hands of readers. But that bridge that we call marketing, where the author becomes a micro entrepreneur doing a product launch, talking about their product that is so deeply personal and vulnerable, feels so uncomfortable to them. How do you think about that kind of go-to-market, get-to-the-audience piece of, yeah, launching a book? Well, I love it in many ways. I love an interview. I love a reading. I love a bookstore event so much. And for like <laughs> Streams to the Ocean, I didn't get to do that because it was deep COVID. Right. And I, I did get to that. do that with To Shake, and it was unbelievably fun. And- mm. I love meeting people. And now like a third book, like people, I'll meet people that have like read my body of work and have followed me. I remember wow. I met a girl on the streets of Berlin. She said, I've followed you since middle school. What? Yes. Because, what? because my trip, you know, she followed me on my bike trip wow. and that was in 2013 and 14. So now, wow. you know, she's now 20. Or whatever. And she's like studying abroad in Berlin. And I'm like, it's so crazy. what a world. So it's just really cool to get to meet people. And now they've been, I've been a part of their life for maybe a decade, which is just a very strange and cool. And for a lot of young people, a very significant chunk of their life. And so I don't know. I just love meeting people and talking to them. And, and a book is such a private experience. You can't like, it's mm. not like cooking someone a meal and watching them eat it. You can't watch someone read your <laughs> no. book. And no. so, I, yeah, no. So it's my chance to actually like feel like there's something happening. You know, a book launch mm. is just maybe someone buys it and then they get it in the mail and then they have 20 hours <laughs> spread out over two weeks. You know, like what, what are we talking about? It doesn't yeah. feel like anything. <laughs> so doing, you know, a reading, a talk, a tour. Ugh, I'm already so excited. And Any plans for the, yeah. Well, they're thinking it, it was going to be September next year. And now they're thinking maybe early November. So like right now, which okay. I just love the fall and I hate September in Los Angeles. So I'm like, what a dream. This is perfect. <laughs> but so it'll be in the fall next year. And I love fall, especially everywhere else, but California. Oh, me too. So <laughs> That is the dream. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, any advice for aspiring authors or for those who are just getting started, who are looking at your career and trajectory and saying, oh, I want to do that too. And I'm just overwhelmed. Mm. Well, 
I can only say what my life, which was I first wrote for me because I needed to get my thoughts out. And then I put it online and I discovered that other people encouraged it in me. You know, there's, I'm, I say this all the time, but it doesn't only matter what you love. It's what loves you back. And so when you do something, do you get feedback? You know, if you're singing in the kitchen and no one acknowledges (laughs) anything, that's good that you like singing, but like, don't audition for anything. Do you know what I'm saying? You need people to stop with, you need them to put the plate down, look at you and go, excuse me. That's when, (laughs) that's when, you know, and you know, Seth Godin says, you really know, this is what really got me. You really know when you're onto something, when you produce something and you put it out there and it's not your friends that like it only because your friends are required to encourage you. It is people, it is suddenly your friends have shared it with somebody and then they've shared it with somebody and someone that you do not know contacts you and says, this really helped me or I love this song or I tried your recipe and my family's upset, whatever it is. Like that means Mm -hmm. that the thing that you make has legs of its own. It doesn't require your social connections and people having social connection to you. And that pays double dividends of being a good friend. And oh my God, they're going to ask me if I read their thing. And like, (laughs) I don't want to sound like an asshole. You know that you're onto something when the thing you've created walks away from you and is talking to people you don't know. And that, and what I would say to aspiring writers is keep writing and putting things out there until you see that happen. If that happens, that is a nudge from the universe that you should keep going. And listen, no matter what, if you're writing for yourself to get your thoughts out on the page and figure out what do I think and how how does my brain work, that is always good. I think everyone should do that 100%. Now, if you're writing fiction, that's the thing. If you love writing stories and you do it, then you share it. You watch and see if any of those stories start to walk around. Oh, so good, Jed. Okay, last question. Any book recommendations for our audience? Any books that you're reading or loving personally right now? Okay, let me remember. Well, I just read Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, which I don't even know if I can recommend because it is so violent, but I loved it. It is so violent. Like, I had to, like, put it down on the subway. Whoa. I mean, you can't, it's just about the Wild West and, like, Cowboys killing each other and like really bad, but I love the West and whatever. Let me think what I I've been <laughs> slugging books around loving things. Oh, oh my God. The best book on writing I've ever read is by Chuck Palahniuk. However you say his name called consider this. Okay. Consider this. It just came, it just came out in like 2021 or 2020 even. And he wrote fight club. He wrote a lot of, he's very famous for his fast moving often masculine, but great fiction. <laughs> and oh, never heard of it. He has such good tips in there. And this is as a memoirist. It still helped oh, me wow. so much. And he, he peppers in ideas for like getting your form and your structure. Great. And then stories from the road from his book tours and his stories are unbelievable. Like he, he just has lived a wild life and he's a very famous writer. So he, <laughs> things have just gone very haywire at many of his events and readings. But I highly recommend that book. Loved, loved, loved. And 
I mean, I'm so deep in Mary Oliver's devotions. I've just really like oh, sold. Especially as the as the seasons turn, it just feels it's prayer. That book is prayer, and she is prayer. Oh, so and beautiful! I can't recommend it enough. It's a great Christmas gift to get people too, because it's just like you can read it one yeah. poem a day or whatever. I love it. Beautiful idea, Jed. I love chatting with you. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you for letting us see behind the curtain a little bit and get into your creative process. It's such a joy. Thank you for caring because I'm alone a lot of the day. I'm just like alone, clickety-clacking on my laptop. So it's really (laughs) great that anyone cares. Thank you for having me. The glamorous life of a writer. (laughs) I love it. Oh, and what's the name of the new book so we can keep a lookout for it? Honestly, working Working title. title. It's like we we have 30, 30 guesses. So... Maybe, you know, when we can add it to the show notes or something when this podcast is published or edit it later when it's fixed. But we, we're we just really going back and forth because, you know, a title really needs to jump out at you and make you happy. It does. And there's a few I really like, but it's a messy journey. It's a messy journey. That could be a great working title. Yeah. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. Jed Jenkins, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Love, love you, you too.